You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but you, the Lord, made the heavens. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Father, this was the name that you spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. I am the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. And you've commanded us that your name should not be taken in vain and should be kept holy. Holy is the name of the Lord God, the only creator of the earth. We Your people exalt you, God. We turn our attention to you, God who created the universe, the invisible maker, and we glorify you. And together we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Church, as you're seating, please open your Bible to Colossians chapter one. Sometimes we can get so lost in the details that we lose focus on the big picture. If you're one of those personalities that's a high detailed oriented person, this can happen to you. Or maybe you know someone like this. Maybe you know someone or you are someone who's like a A plus party planner. Someone needs a party done, you know you're the person to call. Pinterest ain't got nothing on you. You need a theme for a birthday party, you got that theme. You need, you need games that match the theme, you got the games. You need food that is decorated in such a way that people are going to like be in awe, you got the food. And you got a schedule so when the party happens, everything's sequential, everything happens, everyone can enjoy themselves. But sometimes people like this actually plan so others can enjoy, but they don't actually enjoy the party themselves. Sometimes we can be so caught up in the details that we lose sight of the bigger picture. Today in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, we are going to look at very specific, particular, rich, theological details about the divine nature of Jesus, the Son of God. And Up front, I want you to know that this sermon is going to be intellectually stimulating. If I pull back this curtain on what my preaching usually looks like, uh, I want to show you something briefly. Usually when I'm preparing and crafting a sermon, uh, for every main idea that we follow verse by verse, I will give the meaning and then immediately I'll say what it means for us. What does it mean to them and how is it significant to us? But there's so much rich detail in this passage that I believe that we need to focus our attention first on who Jesus is and the significance that happens for us, the difference it will make in our life, that's going to come at the end of the sermon. So I want you to don't zone out in this. Tune in. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. And there's going to be a lot of note-taking. You probably opened your bulletin and saw all these notes and might have had a heart attack. Don't worry, the back side is blank. The front side is for the note taking to follow with the outline. The back side is to write personal observations that you get from the sermon. But know this, here's why we're going to focus so 
teaching-oriented in this message. The first 14 verses of Colossians is very focused on the Colossian, the people themselves. 13 times the second person pronoun, you, is used. But now we're in a verse 15. And from verse 15 to verse 20, there are zero occasions where the word you is used. This sermon is not about you. There's zero occasions where the pronoun you is used, but there are 13 occasions where the pronoun him is used. This sermon is about the him who is the divine son of God, Jesus Christ. And we're going to look into detail about him. And what we're going to learn is that Jesus is supreme over all. Recognize him. Now, in order that we're not just lost in the details and see the bigger picture, I'm not just going to read the verses in the context of the sermon today. The sermon's verse 15 to 17, but I want to start the sermon looking at the bigger picture of Colossians by reading the whole first chapter of Colossians. So, st- no, I'm not going to ask you to stand. Don't worry. That's a, long, that's a long reading. Your legs will hurt. We're going to read the whole chapter of Colossians now so we get the bigger picture to understand why we're looking into the details. So let's look at verse 1 now. Colossians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, 
who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The big picture of the book of Colossians is striving to be mature in Christ. But what does it mean to be mature? Well, our maturity is in Christ. So if we're going to know how to be mature, we need to know Christ. And this message is recognizing that he is supreme. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 to verse 17 shows three ways that exalt the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. Jesus is God. Recognize him. Recognize that Jesus is God. Verse 15 to verse 17 is the detail we're looking into. Press in, you're going to be intellectually stimulated. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Image and firstborn are both, both divine titles. So back in the Roman times, they had coins like we did. Who's the, who's the image? Who's the profile that's on our Canadian coins? Who is that? It's the queen, right? Queen Elizabeth. Back in Roman times, they had political figures, profiles that were also stamped, imaged on their coins. And when they saw the profile of the figure on the coin, they saw an image of the figure. Jesus is God, and being called the image of the invisible God means that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, reveals the nature of the invisible Father. And he also manifests God amongst humanity. Jesus is God. In John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus is even now is preparing places in his Father's house so that they can be, so that we who believe in Jesus can be with the Father forever. I am the way. Seven times, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I am, I am the way, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the bread of life, and more like this. 
See, some skeptics who read the Bible with a Western North American lens will read Jesus' sayings and say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never said, I am God. And that's true. Jesus never said, I am God. But seven times he said, I am. And to a Hebrew audience, hearing him say, I am, they recognized he was making a divine claim about his nature. And they rec- we know they recognize that because one time when he said, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, you know what their response was? Yo, go get some stones and we're going to kill this guy because he thinks he's equal with God. He's claiming to be God. Jesus is God. What this means is that anything that can be known, any knowledge about God is gained through knowing Jesus. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. Not only is Jesus the image of the invisible God, Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn means that Jesus ranks over and above all things. Jesus ranks over and above all things. Now, in order to better explain what firstborn means, I need to explain what it does not mean. Firstborn does not mean first created. There's some, some of our neighbors in the city of Markham meet in a building across the street and they think they're the true witnesses of the true God. There's a building across the street and on the sign of the building are two letters, J-W. They might have come to your door once upon a time. The Jehovah's Witnesses are a Christian, a, excuse me, non-Christian sect, cult, that believes they're worshiping the true God, but they are not. It was started in 1870. And in 1870, they started teaching some things that weren't in the Bible, like that the Trinity isn't real, and that Jesus was a created being. And they use Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 as an argument. Aha, see, Jesus was the firstborn. Jesus isn't God, he was created. Firstborn does not mean first created. In ancient Eastern culture, firstborn was generally a title designated to the eldest sibling of a family. It did mean oldest in some context, but it also meant that when Dad dies, the oldest son becomes head of the family. He ranks above them. And even sometimes, like Jacob's sons, the oldest son of Jacob, remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the oldest son was Reuben. But when Jacob died, he gave a blessing to all of his sons. And in his dying blessing, he said, Reuben is not going to be the ranking son. Judah is going to be the ranking son. And this title firstborn of meaning ranking above others is used in another context. In Psalm 89 verse 27, it's used to define the rank of David as king as compared to other kings. Now, tune in, don't zone out. This is intellectually stimulating. We're loving God with our minds, remember? Psalm 89 verse 27 says, I will make him, King David, the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. Does that mean that David was a brother with every other king in the ancient Near East and that he was the oldest? No, he wasn't related to any of the kings. 
What it means is that being designated the firstborn means that God was saying that my chosen king ranks above all other kings. Jesus manifested in creation as the incarnate son of God ranks above all creation, ranks above any king, any ruler, any politician, any wealthy man, any businessman. Christ universally, eternally ranks above all. And if we believe this, this means that we're going to gladly acknowledge his supremacy and submit to his authority. Jesus is supreme over all. Recognize that he is God. That's the first way that we can recognize his supremacy. Here's another. Jesus is supreme over all. Recognize that he created all things. Recognize that he created all things. Look back at the text with me, verse 16. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Jesus created all things, and this passage specifies that all things includes the physical universe. When it says heaven and earth, God's word is describing everything in the physical universe. And and the next two words, visible and invisible, don't specify something new. They actually are like the color commentary that describes heaven and earth. Actually, Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 is actually an ancient poem. In the original language, it's, it's poetry. But ancient poetry is a little different than modern poetry. Modern poetry is easily identifiable by rhyming, right? Like, roses are red, violets are blue. I like Oreos in the lobby. Maybe you do too. I don't know. But you know that's a poem because it rhymes, right? An ancient Eastern poem It wasn't identified by its rhyming, but often by its rhythm. Heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Rhythm and parallelism. See, the heavens were paralleled to the invisible. Everything that's above us that we know is there but can't see with the naked eye. And earth was paralleled with visible. Everything that's in front of us that we can see with our eyes. Everything in the physical universe. Everything that you can look up and see with the telescope. Everything that you look in a microscope and see. And everything beyond the microscope that you can't see was created by Jesus. Not only did he create the physical universe, but he created the spiritual realm as well. See, we believe that we live in a reality created by a divine being and there is a spiritual realm that is amongst us. And this passage describes that Jesus created these things. Well, where do we see that in the text? When it talks about thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, when I first read this passage, I thought that meant like human government institutions, right? Like a throne, the place where a king sits. Dominion, the jurisdiction that a king uh, executes his authority. That's not what this passage is referring to. Thrones, dominions, and rulers or authorities are classes of angelic beings. And these are the terms to designate them. Actually, we can help clarify this more when we understand how Paul, the Apostle Paul, talked about these classes in another passage. Notice the third and the fourth class, rulers and authorities. 
he talks about exactly what and who these are, what spiritual beings these are in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It's on the screen. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Who are those rulers and authorities? Against the cosmic powers of, over the present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's talking about demons. God created angels. God created demons. God created them all to submit to his authority and execute his will, but a third of these beings rebelled against God. Well, here's a good question. Why was this significant for Paul to specify? Why was it important for Paul to specify that God created demons? Well, because the Colossian false teachers that had permeated into their church was telling them, don't listen to the message you heard originally from Epaphras. Don't listen to that message. They were insisting that they listen to a different message and they were telling them, you must listen to our message because we heard it from an angel. And Paul didn't deny that they heard a message that contradicted the gospel from a spiritual being. He knew that they were telling a contradictory message and probably understood that it was from a spiritual being, but Paul recognized that these were demonic influences. Be sure, church, there is a spiritual realm. There are malicious, angelic beings called demons who are trying to maliciously, violently, vigorously afflict our patterns of thinking and our livelihood to turn us away from God. But this passage says that Jesus created even them. And he's superior and supreme over them as his creator, as their creator. And not only that, but Colossians 2 verse 15 says that in the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame See, when Jesus Christ died, it says in the Gospel of John, I think 1 John, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. And he did that at the cross. The enemy wants, there is a real enemy that wants to keep non-Christians from believing the Gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 it says that he has a veil over their mind to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the Gospel. But Christian, not only did Jesus disarm these enemies at the cross, but he also allowed opportunity for freedom at the cross. You see, friend, Jesus died for your sins so that you could be saved from your sins to enjoy eternal life with God. There are real demons. There are evil powers, but Jesus is supreme over them and you could be liberated to have eternal life if you, like the people who are baptized today, like Jessica and like Chris and like John, recognize that you are a sinner, that you're separated from God. And by believing in him, you will be liberated. You will be saved and you will know that Christ is supreme and you can have life in him. Jesus is supreme over all things recognize him. He created the physical universe. He created the spiritual universe. There's one third more thing that we need to recognize. He, he is God. He created all things. Before we look and to see the difference that it makes in our life, here's the last thing we're going to learn today about Jesus, about him. 
Recognize the ways that Jesus relates to his creation. See, there are five ways in this passage that describe how Jesus relates to his creation. Some people think about God like a passive watchmaker. This is a philosophical term called deism. Deism is the belief that, yeah, there may have been a spiritual being that created the universe, but he's no longer involved in it. Like a watchmaker who wound up the gears, set, let it go, and now it's playing itself out. Christianity does not teach that about God. Christianity teaches that God is a personal being who is actively, intentionally involved in the course of the world, guiding human history towards the trajectory that he wants it to go. And there are five ways here that we see God involved in his creation. The first one's verse 17. In verse 17 it says, He is before all things. The first way that Jesus relates to his creation is that he pre-existed all of creation. See, I can open a book and learn what happened in the 20th century and in the 19th century and in the 18th century, but I only exist in the 21st century. But Jesus existed before every century. Even the first generation, Adam and Eve, he was there before them. And if Christ was there before time, before all things, if Christ existed before all things, that means that Christ is eternal. And this is further evidence from the scripture of our conviction that Jesus is divine. Jesus is before all things and Jesus sustains all things. That means that, or it says that he holds all things together in verse 17. Everything that you can see in a telescope Everything that you can see in a microscope. The complexity of this world points to a divine creator. The way to build a house is not to load all of the materials on two trucks and then drive them together on the highway so that they smash together and all of a sudden the house will be built. Design indicates a designer. Christ created all these things and they continue to exist because he sustains all of them. He is the source of all life and holds together all life. He created all things. He pre-existed all things. Also verse 15, it says, for by him all things were created. By him means that he is the originator of all things. So if you want to build a house, what do you actually do? Well, first, you need an architect. You need someone who's actually going to put together the plans to be able to make this house be built. When you look out at creation and you see the beauty of what's around us, and you marvel at mountains and waterfalls, all of its beauty exists because it was made by him. He's responsible for its design. And not only by him, the passage continues to say that it all was made through him. All things were created through him. Not only is he the originator, but he's the maker. After an architect puts the plans together for a house, he needs a contractor that's actually going to make the house. Jesus, together with the Father and the Spirit, the whole of the Trinity was involved in creation. When God spoke the words, let there be life, the word of God, 
who is Christ. Jesus isn't the word who was with God in the beginning. Jesus is the power that created all things that he also originated. And not only that, but he is the goal of all things. This is that all things were created through him and for him. An artist writes his name at the bottom of his painting so that he can receive the credit that he is due. And in the same way, as God is the maker and originator of all things, Christ deserves the credit for all the glory of creation. Jesus is supreme over all. Do you recognize him? So we've grasped the meaning now. I hope you have grasped the meaning and maybe in a deeper way that you haven't before. Now it's time to make the shift from meaning to significance, from what the passage says to them to how it will make a difference for us. How will recognizing the supremacy of Christ make a difference in your life? I think there are three ways in particular that I meditated on as I consider this passage. What difference will it make in your life if you recognize the supremacy of God? First, this. We can delight in knowing the God who is near. We can delight in knowing the God who is near. This, this point isn't in your notes because I actually didn't recognize it until a moment of prayer and meditation Saturday morning. See, Jesus is the image of God. God in Christ created all things. He's the creator of all things. He pre-existed all things, but he's also the image of God. He is not merely a transcendent God that can't be reached, that can't be known. He is imminent. He is near to us. In John chapter 14, one of his disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, just show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus responded, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then later in John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you obey me, if you love me, you will obey my commandments and the Father and I will come and make our home in him. God is transcendent, but he's also near and you can delight in knowing the God who is near. He wants to personally relate with you. Do you know what it's like to know the God who is near? To relate to the transcendent God who also abides in you? Do you know what it's like to call him your shepherd? and know you're his sheep and actually allow him to lead you the way that you should go into green pastures? Do you know what it's like to know him as your master and to be gladly identified as his slave so that you can obey the will of the one who loves you? Do you know what it's like to be called his child and to call him your father and to be affirmed in your heart of the love that he has for you? You will not know what it means to be human until you are in communion with the one who created you in his image. And there's nothing like it. And if you're going to gain it, the only way to gain nearness with God and enjoy being with God is turning away from being with others to be in solitude with him. When Jesus was on earth, he communed with his father. And in order to gain it, he went in solitude to pray, to meditate. You cannot know nearness with God unless you seek after him in stillness 
in solitude. But when you have the word of God open, the voice is God is heard, and you can follow him. He's the image of the invisible God. He is transcendent but imminent. You can delight in knowing the God who is near. Do you? Do you want that? The Apostle Paul said that he counted everything else as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. It's worth it. It's worth it to wake up before everyone else does and sacrifice sleep to know God. It's worth it to stay up late past everybody else and not watch Netflix so you can know God's word. It's worth it. And it's the only way you'll truly know what it means to be human. Do you want to delight in knowing the God who is near? You can. And there's another way I think that this will make a difference in our lives. We can delight in knowing that God is near, but also our worldview will be changed. If you recognize the supremacy of Christ, your worldview will be formed in Christ. A worldview is simply the lens by which we see the world through. And a lot of things contribute to our worldview. Your heritage contributes to the way you view the world. Your parentage contributes to the way that you view the world. Your socioeconomic status, all of the demographic things that identify us that we were raised with in our childhood contributes to the way that we view the world. But for the Christian, all of those things must be submitted to the most important thing by which we must view the world through, and that is the supremacy of Christ. Is your view of the world influenced in such a way that you are looking to live for the supremacy of Christ? The Colossians needed a worldview like this because people were telling them, no, you can't eat meat from that market. No, you need to observe the Sabbath in this day. They were asking questions. Do I really have to not eat that meat? Do I really have to take a day off in this day? There were some really serious worldview questions that I asked even just this past week, just from listening to the news. For instance, maybe you asked this one, is it just for a 66-year-old serial killer to be allowed the opportunity for parole in 25 years? That's a worldview question. If our country has admitted that it did harm to the First Nations indigenous people, do I as a Christian need to participate in the process of truth and reconciliation? It's a worldview question. Is there any permissible circumstance where it's right for a Christian to consume cannabis? Now, some of you, even as I ask this question, you may have already formulated answers in your head. You may have immediately reacted and said something in your mind. I was actually half expecting someone to say something out loud. But a worldview that is filtered through the lens of the supremacy of Christ needs to thoughtfully and biblically and patiently evaluate these questions. The problem is we don't live in a culture that likes that. We live in a culture that invites emotional thinking by quick reactions, don't we? Whatever post is, goes out first and is the most emotional or the most angry is usually the one that is listened to the loudest. And we get caught up in that too. For the Christian, ignorance is not bliss. 
ignorance breeds immaturity. And if we're going to be informed biblical thinkers that look at the world through the lens of the supremacy of Christ, we need to be thoughtful and patient. And sometimes the best thing we can do is just be quiet. See, Jesus lived in a culture where he was put in a circumstance where people were angry, emotional, caps lock, give me an answer now. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, some men caught a woman in the act of adultery and threw her before Jesus. Pause. If she was caught in the act of adultery and thrown before Jesus, what was she wearing? See, they wanted to shame her and use her as a pawn for their political and religious views. That's horrible. With stones in their hands, they said, the law says we should kill her. What do you say? Give me a reaction. What do you say? Loud voices. What did Jesus do? He had something to say. But first he knelt to the ground, wrote something with his finger in the sand, stood back up and said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. See, a worldview that looks through the supremacy of Christ will have to look at the world patiently, biblically, thoughtfully. Sometimes the best thing we can do is just be quiet and not have an answer so that we can look into God's word and ask, in what way will Christ be shown supreme because he is supreme over all things? We can delight in knowing the God who is near. Our worldview will be formed in Christ. And then finally and lastly this. If we recognize the supremacy of God, our life goals will be conformed to Christ. If we recognize the supremacy of Christ, our life goals will be conformed to Christ. I'll leave you with this last thought. And it's a weird thought. It might seem out of context, but it's an honest question. Do you know how to boil a frog? Do you? I do. Yeah, that's right. Slowly. See, if I cook, if I want to boil pasta, I turn it hot as quick as I can. When it's bubbling, they throw the pasta in. If you try and do that with a frog, I know maybe some of you like frog's legs, I've never had it, it's okay if you do, whatever, we can be friends. <laughs> but you don't turn the water all the way to boil and throw the frog in when it's boiling. It'll immediately recognize the heat and jump out. What you do is you start it at lukewarm room temperature. Put the frog in and slowly turn up the heat and you're gonna cook it and it won't even know. Some junior high kids are going to go try that today. Sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> See, here's the point. This is the only culture that many of us have known. Western, North American dream, you can have it all. And many of us have been in this water our whole lives, and we don't even know it, but the values of this culture have been cooking us. If you want the North American dream, you can get it. You want the brands, you can get it. You want the recognition and the letters behind your name, you can get it. You want the followers on social media and popularity and celebrity status, you can get it. You want the house, you can get it. You can. But at what cost? Jesus told us the cost. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Christ is supreme, 
And Christ has told us to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him. But so many of us are not picking up our crosses because we're goal in life is ease and comfort. Some of us need to repent of the goals that we have of a life. Some of us need to repent of the way that we're building our, our RSBs. Some of us need to repent of the way that we're spending family vacation. Some of us need to repent of the way that we're putting our kids in extracurricular activities or extra school touring, thinking that getting them the education. is the, Some of us need to repent of our life goals because they're not conformed to the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. See, see, you think you're working to gain something that will give you joy. But it's ash. Everything Jesus says in the last day is wood, hay, and stubble, or gold and precious metals and stones. In the last day, when you stand before Christ, and friend, we all will stand before Christ. Everything you've achieved will be heaped up on an altar and a match will be set on it. And only what's done in Christ will remain. It's worth it to lose what you haven't really gained so that you can gain in Christ what you can never lose. When you recognize the supremacy of Christ in all things, you will repent. I will repent. And we will live for the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, thank you for your greatness and goodness. What a joy to know Christ. This man who is God, who walked amongst us for 30 some odd years. Father, your son is beautiful. He is magnificent. He is awesome. What are we that you would even think about us? We're rebellious, stubborn people. You are great and you are greatly to be praised. Oh, Father, you are to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the world are worthless idols, but you made the heavens. Lord, help us to build our lives on Christ. He is the cornerstone. Some people stumble over him, but we build our lives on him. Lord, help us as a church, as families, in our marriages, in our careers, in our schooling, as a body who is called the light of the world and the salt of the earth, let us build our lives on the supremacy of Christ. Cause us to see where we need to repent and lead us the way we should go for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.